0: Standard Issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's com slash standard. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 210 of the standard issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and last week I went to not one but two gigs. Hashtag cool. What gigs? Went to see Jack White on Tuesday. Excellent. Ooh. Very, very good. Lovely time had. And then went to see LCD Sound System on Friday. I'd massively forgotten how much going to one of their gigs is like going to a rave and I was a sweaty little piggy wiggy at the end of it.
1: (laughs) Mickey I totally read what you'd written on social media as you'd had a lovely time at Jack Whitehall and I was a bit like really okay this isn't exactly what I have Mickey aligned with in my brain but you know why not? I'm not
0: going to criticise people's choice in comedians because, you know, it's very subjective. Yes, and, it is. you know, you can just have someone who's not your cup of tea and he's not my cup of tea. He is also the only person who's ever said to me, do you know who I am? And I went, no, but I know who that is with you.
1: <laughs> Interesting. Interesting. You've never told me that before. That's a good one.
0: Yeah. Unlikely to go and see him at the Apollo, if I'm honest. But Jack White, yes, please.
1: That makes a lot more sense to me, to be
2: honest. (laughs) I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I've a wee story for anyone who enjoys A Strange Coincidence. Is this a small
0: story or a story about wee?
2: Well, no, it's just a small (laughs) story, (laughs) yes. So, as you know, my nephew and I have been in New York, and out of our bedroom window, we could see another hotel that was like abandoned and it was called the Hotel Carter and it had the big letters on the roof and some of them had fallen over it looked very derelict and almost immediately we started to refer to it as the death hotel (laughs) because it just looked like a place that people had died and after a couple of days it occurred to me I could google it and find out about the history of this hotel Mm -hmm. so and it has indeed been the site of many 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 deaths in fact it was quite notorious there's been a lot of murders there and also a lot of high profile suicides there, oh. including the suicide of the writer William Lindsay Gresham, who wrote the book Nightmare Alley, which I don't know if anyone has heard of. It was made into a film by Guillermo del Toro last year. Oh,
0: yeah. I heard of the film.
2: Mm. And was what I watched on the plane on the way over. Whoa.
0: Wow. Weird coincidence. That means eh? you murdered all those people. Mm. That's how it works. I bet, I bet all of the doppelgangers were in that hotel, Jen. Probably.
1: <laughs> Probably. I'm Jen Offord and I'm doing it right now. I just realised today that my laptop has a touch screen. Answers Ooh. on a postcard or tweet.
2: How long have you had it for, Jen?
1: Six months. Three months, three months. If you have any idea how I would make use of this feature, apart from right now, I'm using it to uh, flick through a Word document, which is To scroll, yeah. It's handier than I thought it would be when I wrote that bit of the script, if I'm honest. (laughs) Oh, and to zoom on photos. Yeah, I know. Zooming on my Word document as we speak. So do you want me me and
0: Hannah to write this on a postcard or send it to you as a tweet?
1: Just cover it off here and now, shall we? It's more useful than I imagined when I wrote this. (laughs) Sort it.
0: Later on, I chat radio phone-ins, privilege, one-upmanship, and toxic friendships with writer, broadcaster, and mental health champion Natasha Devon.
1: In Journey off the Blocks, I'm talking balls again. This time to one <laughs> half of the... <laughs> I'm Sorry. <laughs> this time, oh, to... <laughs> balls are funny. <laughs> <laughs> This time to one half of the Two Girls Talk Balls podcast Charlotte French about the Women's Euro. Did you just say balls again? Balls. got more balls coming up, haven't we, in, in Bush Telegraph? Anyway. Indeed. Balls all over the place. And particularly today, let me finish. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening... Balls, 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 balls. If you're listening bulls, on Wednesday bulls, bulls, because bulls, the Women's Euro kicks off tonight thank you yay
0: yay for balls balls
2: and in rated or dated 1931's take your kid to work day goes badly as we watch (laughs) 2002's road to petition
0: well there's an understatement but first something is rotten in the state of uk it's time for the bush telegraph cue sting bush (laughs) telegraph
1: Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, where no one is reeling from the news that Nadine Dorries doesn't know very much about rugby. Or anything. Imagine if she, like, one day just throws out an accurate fact. It would be astounding. I don't think we're in any danger of it happening, though. So, I will say in her defence... What? (laughs) I know we're talking about a speech that she made the other week. To do with her job as the culture, media, sport and digital secretary of state she confused rugby league and rugby union. Mm-hmm. And in f- in fairness to Nadine, because I am a fair person, even quite competent ministers have other people write their speeches for them. It's probably not her mistake, but she wouldn't have picked up on it because she's... is a fucking brush, so there we go. (laughs) Shall we move on to to
0: something else? Shall we move away from Nadine Doris? No, I cannot. I cannot (laughs) take you there. I'm sorry, Jed. I barely need an excuse to revisit Ed Balls dancing to Gangnam Style, but I do have a personal rule that whenever he says something brilliant, I treat myself to a little watch. Also on Ed Balls' day, obviously, I'm not a monster. April the twenty eighth. Big big day in this house. Anyway, it was nice to see Balls behind the Good Morning Britain desk this morning instead of the usual scrotum, aka Richard madeley And boy did Balls deliver an understated corker, muttering, That's very hard. When Children and Families Minister Will Quint said he has to take it on trust what number ten has told me. <laughs> mm, lols It would be so funny if they weren't fucking up the country, eh? It's no stretch to detect an undercurrent of sympathy from Balls when he says that as yet another minister no one's really heard of is wheeled in front of the media to defend the indefensible coming out of Boris Johnson's den of iniquity. I don't feel sorry for them, by the way. Johnson's made a bed and it's their choice whether to lie in it or lie about it or lie that they didn't even know it was a bed. And they're only in this prone position because all that spin makes a person dizzy. Anyway, what this time, eh? And fair dues for asking. You might well have guessed that I'm talking about disgraced Deputy Chief Whip Chris Pincher, who faces allegations he groped two men at London's Carlton Club last week, but I am recording this on Monday, and who knows what flavour of rancid shit will have hit the <laughs> Tory fan by the time you're listening on Wednesday. It's not the first time Pincher, who was Deputy Chief Whip until his resignation last Thursday and has since been suspended as a Conservative MP, has been accused of sexual misconduct. According to the Sunday Times, he's alleged to have made unwanted passes at two conservative MPs in 2017 and 2018. That's after his first resignation as a whip, but crucially, before his appointment as a whip by Johnson this February. Pincher, who is also refusing to resign as an MP, I wonder where he's got that idea, now faces six new claims of inappropriate behaviour stretching back several years. He is denying all of this. Talking of denial, and seriously, there is so much of it going on in our parliament, you'd be forgiven for thinking Westminster had moved to Egypt. Johnson is, of course, denying he knew anything about Pincher's behaviour, despite laughingly referring to him in number 10 as Pincher by name, Pincher by nature, long oh. before appointing him. You'll have sensed quote marks there, and I am quoting Dominic Cummings, no less. But, you know, given Johnson is slippier than a greased up eel, I imagine this is another situation he'll slide out of. Pincher, meanwhile, has blamed being drunk and the stresses of the last few months for his behaviour and plans to seek medical support. I mean, I don't think sexually assaulting people is an illness. I think it's a choice, but I'll tell you what is sick. Boris Johnson's government and the culture it has fostered. To the point where I don't think cutting off the head of the snake, should that ever happen will reverse the damage that's been done.
1: I think there's two fundamental problems here. Number one is that a lot of people, even within the Tory party, who I would consider sort of sensible and reasonable and measured, left before the last general election Mm. because they were like, fuck this shit, I am out I'm out of it because politics has become so hideous in general terms. I think the other problem is that we have a very, very entitled elite group who are running the show, on the other hand, and then you've got people like Boris Johnson who have demonstrably done terrible fucking things, who clearly have like absolutely no morals, no integrity, no nothing about them that is good and nice, and they just do what the fuck they like. Mm -hmm. regardless of their political persuasion i think most people think that what they're doing is is right for whatever reason but i don't think boris johnson does at all i don't think he gives a shit and i think he's fostered a culture amongst his politicians whereby they don't have to give a shit either because if he doesn't why the fuck should they
0: absolutely yeah totally you know obviously the tories are big believers in trickle-down economics which clearly Mm. doesn't work but i tell you what trickle-down wankonomics—that that is flying
1: yeah absolutely absolutely like i mean but it, but the thing is if you believe in one you have to believe in the other don't you if you believe in the principle of trickle down anything you have to believe that that's something that happens across the board so if you think trickle down economics works why can you you know like trickle down culture of course of course that's a fucking thing of course it is
0: you're applying sort of sane reasonable person logic there
1: i know it's because i'm a very sane and reasonable person mickey as we've often discussed in the past (laughs) benevolent dictator absolutely absolutely when will it be my time to shine mickey (laughs) anyway It was a bad week for the Metropolitan Police last week, Mick. Oh, didn't. I know. The force was put into special measures by policing watchdog, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary and Fire Rescue Services. I've never heard of them before, by the way. It's a long old title, isn't it? It is, isn't it? The Police and Fire Rescue just... Bring those all in under the same remit, why not? This happened because of systemic concerns that were highlighted. Those concerns included substandard responses to emergency calls, a, and I quote, fundamentally flawed approach to tackling corruption, a failure to log 69,000 crimes, which is described as barely adequate crime recording, by the way, and a backlog of child abuse referrals. So that's... that's... It's not sounding great, is it? It's
0: one hell of a list, isn't it? it is. Also, I'm questioning barely adequate. I don't think <laughs>
1: adequate should be in there at all. 69,000, that's quite the deficit, isn't it? Yeah. But guess what? It was an even worse week slash month slash year for women, according to an interrogation of those unrecorded crime stats by The Times.
0: I'm not even getting my surprised <laughs> face out, Jen. You're saying it's like it's news,
3: but I we know. already know this. I yeah.
1: know. The newspaper reported on Monday that The Met, which is the largest police force in England and Wales, has been substantially under recording crimes, which include rape, stalking and violence. So when I say it's been a bad week for women, that's because we all know who the primary victims of those crimes are.
0: Absolutely.
1: In fact, it said, compared to West Midlands Police, which is one of its closest counterparts in terms of size, it was recording half as many rapes, a third of the number of stalking incidents and hundreds fewer violent crimes. In the case of rapes, the Times said The Met recorded 77 rapes per 100,000 people in the 12 months to March this year. That compares to 131 the in the West Midlands, and 113 and 116 in Greater Manchester and West Yorkshire, respectively. According to the article, anomalies in the Met crime stats has been noted in the past, and the former Met Commissioner, Lord Stevens of Kirk-Welpington, which is quite the name, mm. he said, "...I cannot believe that those other cities are so far worse than the Met, because that has never been the case in the past." He did, however, concede that perhaps falling levels of trust in the Met could have led to. (laughs) No way! Could have led to less people reporting crimes and possible difficulties in reporting crimes because of a reduced number of police officers. These are not, however, great excuses, are they? They don't cover the Met in glory either way, really. No,
0: I I don't think that's a get out of jail free card, if you excuse the pun.
1: Oh, I like that in fairness to the met though i'm not going to feel a huge amount of sympathy for them here they are by no means the only force to face criticism in the last week in fact they were one of six forces to be placed in special measures including greater manchester cleveland gloucestershire staffordshire and wiltshire One of the reasons cited by the watchdog for the problems that have necessitated the action against the mayor was an influx of young and inexperienced staff as part of a national recruitment drive after huge austerity cuts to the force. So what I'm saying is we can at least to some extent blame the Tories for this, but we can't blame them for everything, can we?
0: absolutely can blame them for some absolutely can't blame them for everything yeah totally also yeah. being put in special measures does sound a bit like being made to sit on the naughty step
1: well i don't know what it actually means like i guess what it means is they write them a letter and tell them they're very angry about what they've done or or, or you know they're, they're disappointed in their performance a kind of book your
0: ideas up Sonny jim yeah
1: and then they sort of keep an eye on them mm. and ask them to report to more specific measuring criteria or whatever but what happens if they don't yeah. do it it's not like they're all going to lose their jobs is it
0: her majesty's inspectorate of constabulary and fire rescue services has gone one two don't you make me say three don't you make me say three the Mets
1: two and a half thing is they're currently looking for a new commissioner aren't they so you would hope that whoever replaces dame cressida dame dick if you will stick and balls heavy this week it's a real sausage fest
0: who who is this confident person who's going to be like oh yeah i can sort this shit out i mean i feel like their work is going to be pretty cut out
1: yeah because if we're going to talk about trickle-down economies, et cetera, et cetera, that is a lot of trickling to do, isn't it? It's a big old beast, the Metropolitan Police. That uh-huh. is a lot yeah. of people, some of whom who have been posted for, like, decades. It's a lot of culture to change.
0: Totally. Uh, we've discussed how the number of bad apples means that it's probably the barrel that needs, you know,
1: looking up. Yeah. Mick, would you like some good news? Fuck Yeah. Okay, well, we head over to the world of sport for today's good news. And that news is that the Rugby Football Union, not the Rugby League, <laughs> just to be clear on that. All right, has, Doris. Yeah has announced its intention to professionalise the Premier 15s, that's the English Top Flight Women's League, over the next decade. In a new strategy document, the RFU details how it plans to start work from the 2023-24 season onwards, setting out a model to become financially sustainable. Over the next 10-year period, it anticipates investing around £222 million while recouping around £174 million in revenue not only does it plan to increase the number of teams from 10 currently participating in the league to covering the whole of England, yeah, but it also says that fixtures will be played in stadia meeting minimum requirements for professional broadcast presentation with a view to expanding the league's broadcast reach. Win, 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 win.
0: Indeed, and I love the idea that they're going to expand it so that it's not just 10 it's going to cover the, like you can't move for rugby like women's teams, just, just everywhere. everywhere yeah did you go to the pub couldn't get in four rugby women's teams in there and i'm, I'm all for it <laughs> more news next week well you have equal pay but you know they're not equal are they sexism of the week It's that time of the week where women just need to focus on making more babies, yeah? I mean, look, listeners, I know this feels like an abrupt change in personality and thinking, but I had no idea that here in the UK we're facing an ageing population and lower birth rates. So I think it's not at all unhinged to get women doing more birthing and probably slapping a tax on those who choose to be child-free. What about those who really want kids but for very painful personal reasons can't? Fuck it. Tax them too. If we can't have the extra people, we may as well have the extra cash. Am I right? Oh, and when you've had a third baby, the Queen sends you a telegram. Yes, mate. That'll pay for little baby three's upkeep. Get cracking, though. She's 96. Tick, 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 people. Okay, uh, normal Noonan behaviour resuming because I am, of course calling bullshit on demographer Paul Morland's piece in the Sunday Times on Sunday, which put forward his radical ideas, radical, laughable, and long-term plan to rescue us from those unpromising demographics, which obviously I was aware of. And they include a negative child benefit tax for those who don't have kids and a more pronatal culture generally. Paul, mate, my dude, listen... A report today shows that half of all children in lone parent families are now living in relative poverty. And of course, the vast majority of the 1.8 million lone parent families in Britain, that's almost 9 out of 10, are headed by women. In fact, can add to that, 31% of kids in the UK live in relative poverty. Relative poverty being defined as having an income of less than 60% of the national median, and that's adjusted for household size. Child benefit cuts off after kiddo number two and a letter from her match doesn't put food on the table or clothes on their back or do any fucking thing at all to cover the overall cost of bringing up a child to the age of 18. Including rent and childcare, that comes in at £193,801 for lone parents, Jen just made an excellent face, and <laughs> rightly so, and £160,692 for couples. That stat comes from the latest report in the Child Poverty Action Group's annual Cost of a Child series, which is eye-opening reading. Also, we're in environmental crisis. It's not coming, it's here. And by the end of my lifetime, it's likely Northern Europe will be deep in the process of desertification. And I realise I might be an outlier here to most of you on this, but as much as I love the kids in my life and I stand by people's choice to have children, one of the reasons I've chosen to be child-free is, well, we're fucked as a planet, really, and maybe it's time humans shuffled off, and maybe we won't get a choice in that, no matter how many telegrams Liz gets penned before passing the quill to Charlie. But why aren't people having more children? Yeah, probably that taxing you mentioned, Paul. Not the complete lack of high-quality, affordable childcare.
1: Can I also add something else to this? Which mm-hmm. is that I've read that, I think it was last night I read it, and I know that this term gets bandied around quite unfairly a lot of the time, and we've joked about it on the podcast very much. It's got some very strong Nazi Germany vibes to it as well. The idea's sort of mooted in that article.
0: There's a whiff of fascism. Weird propaganda. I'd say more propaganda. Mussolini than uh, Nazi. It's got
1: some very strange connotations in it that I personally would not want to associate myself with
0: yeah i'm worried now that i didn't make myself clear jen that i'm not a fan of his ideas <laughs> no I,
1: I, I absolutely got that
0: also a little additional sexism is his uh note that maybe we need to let women know that actually that they're after 35 their chances of having kids decreases like women no aware of the that. biological clock and that we're not reminded of it all of the fucking time and that also that is partly based in nonsense from 18th century french monks uh lest we forget
1: i can't believe it surely not
0: you were planning to have your eighth child in your 70s weren't you jen yeah sorry to be the bearer of bad news never been mentioned to me before that there's a, t- a time limit on that shit <laughs> oh, i think jen needs to get in a cupboard now and think about how much money she needs to spend in <laughs> until lyra's 18 i've got some saving to do shit <laughs> Hello, I am joined by writer, broadcaster, mental health champion, and excellent woman, Natasha Devon. Natasha, hello. Hi, thank you so much for having me. As a fellow opinionated woman, I would like to know on a scale of one to white hot fury, how angry
3: you are about now? Just so angry all the time, but also knackered. That's the thing. Uh I found myself on my radio show on Saturday, having a conversation with a British man in which he said, with his full chest, the right to abortion was misandry, actually, because a woman should not be allowed to kill a man's baby. And I was just like, I don't know if I've got the energy for this. Mm. And yet, I also know I have to find the energy from somewhere. But it's that thing of, you know, like at the Women's March, there were kind of women's libbers that had already done the marches in the 70s and they turned up with signs that said i can't believe we're having to do this shit again <laughs>
0: yeah totally we're those i women get it now, now.
3: <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah my evergreen sign that just says fuck this
0: shit it's an equal opportunity sign it really is but seriously the thing that i think is so commendable about what you do on radio is obviously on standard issue we're sweary we swear i swear a lot you have to react to that absolute wank puzzle without calling him a wank puzzle and I I
3: just don't know how you have the control the self-control it it is difficult but it's also I think it's a good skill to have learned Mm. you almost have to sort of detach yourself and go okay this is directly insulting to me or my family or everyone I love however (laughs) they didn't mean it to be when (laughs) when they called in so you sort of have to detach yourself a little bit and go what would my response to this be if I didn't give a shit and and then kind of give give that response and then you know I'll go home and I'll scream into a pillow Uh later but it's that that act of kind of putting your emotions to one side
0: I just assumed you had like seven different screaming pillows in the studio with you at all times.
3: <laughs> sometimes uh, you you will see because sometimes I forget that the cameras are there in oh the God, studio. Of course, it's being filmed as well. Yeah. So me and my, my producer Sarah, uh, we we exchange glances sometimes, and sometimes it's very very obvious that we're doing a kind of non-verbal communication <laughs> through the
0: glass. Can we just mention Danny Kruger? What the actual
3: fuck? I don't feel confident that Boris Johnson's going to look after women, do you? Well, that's the thing. that We have this kind of arrogance, I think, in Britain, where we think that would never happen here. Mm. Even as it is happening, we still say that would never happen here. And that's what's allowing... And I don't use this word lightly. I do think that fascism is creeping into government policy. So when Roe versus Wade happened, I had a lot of people, mainly on Twitter, I'll be honest, but a lot of people saying, it's in America, this won't impact us at all. But of course, what it has done is it's not only emboldened the Mm. anti-choices throughout the world, but it's also shown that it is possible to overturn that that kind of fundamental human rights. And then days later, we've got Danny Kruger, proving the extent to which that is true and Boris Johnson can say at the G7 this seems like a step backwards but there are examples too numerous to count of him saying one thing and then doing the opposite so it's not terribly reassuring.
0: And of course four of the Supreme Court justices are on record saying "Uh -uh, Roe v Wade you know it's an important
3: precedent for the Supreme Court we're not going to touch it and now here we are. Precisely yeah and and it's not just I mean abortion is bad enough but the Roe v Wade as I'm sure you know relates to privacy and bodily autonomy so they could come for contraception next for gay marriage for interracial relationships and that's going to have exactly the same effect it's going to legitimize misogynists and racists and homophobes throughout the world because America has such an enormous amount of cultural power so it's it's a hideous time, Mickey. It Yeah, people are at the moment saying to me, how are you? And I'm like, I can't even bring myself uh-huh. to say fine, you know? Yeah, sad and sick
0: and angry. And like you say, it's exhausting. We use the phrase screaming into the sky, but hopefully we, like you, have a platform where you try and kind of activate people and talk about stuff. And talking is really important let's talk about your show because obviously we talk about some of the topics as you deal with on natasha devon great name for the show by the way which is on every saturday (laughs) at seven on lbc obviously you do keep it topical with so much to skyscream about how do you pick your
3: subjects and are you told that there are no-go areas there's no no no-go areas this is the thing, like as long as you're following the Ofcom rules and as long as there's good evidence for what you're saying, mm-hmm. you can pretty much talk about whatever you want. Obviously, they do want it to be relevant to the news that week and there should be a news story to hook it on. But that I have to say is the great thing about working at LVC because, you know, I have had people say to me, Oh, how can you possibly work at a radio station that once employed Nigel Farage and, and Katie Hopkins? And I'm like, well first of all, they're not there anymore. And there, mm-hmm. there are good reasons why they're not there anymore. But second of all, I'm only in charge of my show those few hours a week, but I am also in charge of it.
4: You know, yeah, so yeah. no
3: one's telling me what to say. There's no editorial line. There's no agenda. And there are a wide range of voices and there are people whose views I disagree with. But it's it's a novelty for me because I have written for newspapers before where it's, you know, I've been told you can't say that. Mm-hmm. I've never been told I can't say anything on LBC. The only reason I would be told that is if it was, you know, libelous or I was just completely pulling it out of my ass. Yeah. <laughs> so as long as there's evidence, you you can say it. Um, and in terms of picking the topics, I mean, it's it's difficult because often there's, you know, seven things that I want to talk about. But um, how it tends to to work is the first hour, it's, you know, the main story of the day but we're on it at, at seven devon at seven and so we'll try and come up with an angle on it that's a little bit different to just purely a reaction to this story yeah totally. because that's what's been that's what's been happening all day on on the station so of so we'll try and come up with a unique angle and then after the first hour that's when you can get into you know things that have caught your eye that are maybe further down on the news agenda
0: you put yourself out there and i'm aware that you get a slice of shit from various dick spittles, but instead of talking about those don't want to give them any more airtime <laughs> i'd like to focus on a positive so what is the most surprising nicest thing you've ever had from a caller
3: oh i i tell you what actually the nicest thing i've had is this guy rang in and he described himself as an old white man uh, and i'm i'm going to guess from his voice that he was maybe late 60s early 70s and he said i think we were we were talking about sexuality i was talking about being bisexual and i was talking about pride and uh, you know the different identities within the lgbtq spectrum and he said i just never thought about this before but the way you've described it to me i get it now and it's that. It's those moments that you go, yes. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> and that's it. That's exactly going back to those people who were like, "Well, oh, why would you want to share a space that used to have Farage and
3: Hopkins in it? It's like, well, there's no point just talking to our echo chamber. That's the thing. and And actually, I think it has been a good exercise for me because before i got the show on lbc i think i was in a bit of a silo as are we all Mm -hmm. you know and so there were things that i just thought this is so obvious there's no way that anybody could ever disagree with this and you very quickly find out that (laughs) no (laughs) but you know having to justify and explain i think is a good is a good thing because it makes you realize why you believe the things that that you believe you know
0: totally totally agree finally just on the radio show can i just say how much i enjoy the lbc landing page for it because it's got a series of screen grabs of you mid passionate flow and it's lovely stuff and it made me giggle this
3: morning i just i've got one of those faces where i cannot hide what i'm thinking Mm -hmm. i would be so rubbish at poker i remember going to a meeting once at parliament and my friend and fellow campaigner was sat next to me and when we came out she said you know that those people in there can see you right (laughs) (laughs) because they were talking and I was just and I didn't realize I thought I was being completely neutral but my face was registering everything I was thinking so yeah there are some there's some good screen grabs (laughs) (laughs)
0: love it love it I'm exactly the same no poker games for me no thank you let's talk about your latest exciting project. Do you want to tell the listeners why I have had Britney Spears as my earworm for about a week and a half?
3: Week and a half. I've had it for 18 months. So, you know... (laughs) I mean, it's, it's a cracking song. <laughs> I wrote a book called Toxic. And um, I wrote it in, actually in response to, I do focus groups with teenagers in, in schools, 14 to 18 year olds. It's just a, a kind of forum for them to tell me what's impacting their mental health and their wellbeing, what they would like more guidance and support with. And just prior to the pandemic, There was this really strong theme emerging of they wanted some guidance on how to navigate toxic friendships Mm. and i think what got them thinking about this in such specific terms was the change to the sex and relationship curriculum because now they have to learn about coercive control in romantic relationships which is really good Mm. so they're learning about things like boundaries and consent and red flags and i think some of them went okay but how do I apply this to a friendship yeah. setting and I thought that's a really good question but it's so nuanced what I would normally do is I would create a lesson plan around that and start taking it into schools but it wasn't clear cut enough I don't think to be able to, uh, b- because it's so kind of multifaceted so I decided instead to write a novel. Now you've written nonfiction before dealing with those
0: similar topics, because obviously you do go into schools and you talk to kids, young adults about this stuff. How different was the process making it fiction?
3: So different, I can't tell you. <laughs> it's it's completely different experience. It's it's like the difference between playing piano and guitar. You know, like it's all music, <laughs> but huh. it's a very different skill set. Nice analogy. I think the the most valuable thing I learned. I've read this really good book called Story Genius before I started writing, because lots of people I know who have written novels said, you need to read this book before, before you do anything. And, it, and it's really good. And, and it talks about how when we're in school, you know, when we're very young, when we write a story, it's always like, there was a man and then a UFO came down and it abducted the man and he had an adventure. And in Story Genius, they're kind of going, okay, but we're meeting this man, part way into his story so what are the experiences and traumas and prejudices and and biases that he is bringing in before we even get started Mm -hmm. so that was I think the biggest lesson that my heroine Luella is almost 18 so she's had nearly 18 years on the planet before we even meet her And, and ensuring that that was represented I think was um the big, the biggest challenge but also the most important thing in making it a, a good book well what I hope is a good book
0: it is a good book can confirm because Toxic is a young adult novel but this absolutely full-grown adult don't always act it but I am uh, was <laughs> totally nodding along in recognition with a lot of what Luella goes through with Aretha her best friend in inverted commas And you touched on it there. The kids touched on it when you talked to them. I think that there is a lot more chat brilliantly about toxic relationships, but it's always focused on romantic relationships. And I think toxic friendships that obviously they're equally damaging, but even harder to spot, I think, when you're in one, right?
3: Yeah, I think so, because some of the myths that I think we pick up about friendship and, Again, this isn't really discussed. So we understand that this whole idea that, you know, in order to be worthy of love, we have to look like a Disney princess. And then, you know, Prince Charming comes along on a, on a steed, and then we live happily ever after at some point I think everybody realizes oh that's bollocks yeah (laughs) and I have to sort of recalibrate my idea of what love is but there are equally I think damaging myths about friendship out there and so this whole idea of like a BFF for life and it's someone you meet when you're really young and then you stick together through thick and thin that you know it it can happen but it's rare because Mm. people change and and evolve throughout their lives and so I think you know the idea that your bff always has your best interests at heart and and isn't bringing any of their own shit into your dynamic actually does as an enormous amount of harm i couldn't agree more and i think for for kids
0: today for young adults today it's even harder you're in that stage of your life where you try, you don't even know who you are how are you supposed to know who they are and yet you're supposed to support everything they do and believe everything they say when they again don't believe everything they say because they don't know who they are yet all of that complication but there's no space anymore because they're always in your pocket you can't have the space that maybe we could have from friendships when we were younger
3: mm. and that's actually another thing that came through really strongly in the focus groups is that young people had a lot of anxiety around who got to own the narrative. And I think this has always been the case because there, there's always been a kind of who side are you on <laughs> type thing that, that happens at school. <laughs> totally. But social media has definitely magnified that, that they were already thinking in advance, how is this going to be reported mm. online and how am I going to come off? So it's, it's affecting their behavior because they're living through the anticipated lens of the social media story if that makes sense.
0: Yeah it's so sad there's so much pressure there because you know even as a, a woman in her 40s I have to remind myself the only person's thoughts that you can control Mickey are yours. That person who you've just tried to be really nice to could go away and think you're a cunt and you've got no control over that but as a teenager that thought is terrifying. As a 45 year old woman that thought is still quite unpleasant but when you're like everything feels like it depends on what other people think about you, that is so hard, therefore, to let go of just always trying to be the best, always trying to people please, always trying to be
3: in control of the narrative. Mm. And that's what I where I think the great paradox is with social media actually, because if you think about it online, we're sort of like an avatar of ourselves with, mm-hmm. with all the bits of, of ourselves that we think are unpalatable sort of airbrushed out. And therefore, when we receive validation online, it never really hits home because it's validation of, of the avatar, not of us. Yes. And yet when we're criticised online, somehow <laughs> it's mm. like, oh, I must be a terrible person. Then it, it, it goes you know, straight to the heart of us
0: yeah there's a bit where luella gets a load of reviews in for or just newspaper reports about something that she's done and she's like well obviously the one that i open is the, the one that's really negative i'm like uh-huh yeah. yeah i'm gonna pick at that scab forever and it, it's just human nature we're kind of drawn sadly to those negative voices loads of the themes in toxic are really important and because you're you you chuck in a load of excellent mental health advice but there's something i thought was really brave of you to tackle and i think you do it really really well because it's such a a a subject that's shifting sands and that is privilege one-upmanship that's how Mm. I'm going to term it it's so sticky isn't it but Luella and Aretha have this almost battle of well who's the most privileged and what does that mean for our friendship it's so topical it's so timely for I think for all of us but particularly for kids
3: yeah so (laughs) it was a real kind of tightrope, trying to get that right. But, Listeners, I, I wish ins- you
0: could see <laughs> Natasha's face because she's doing that. It's a real tightrope face. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: but it was I was inspired in a way, but I watched a, um, a documentary called The School That Tried to End Racism on Channel 4. It's really good. There is a, a young girl, I mean, she's, I think they're in year eight. Um, so she's sort of 12, 13. And she's called Farah. Her mother is white and her dad is from Sri Lanka and Brown. Right at the beginning, these pupils are split into racial affinity groups. And they say, right, so all the the white children have to go in one room and all the children of colour have to go in another room. Farah is sat there and you can see, she's like, I don't know where to go. Mm. I don't think that it's as straightforward as saying because she's mixed. She felt caught between two worlds. It, it's very specifically the way she's mixed as well because she did look kind of brown in some lights and, and white in others. Mm-hmm. And so this idea of not being mixed in the way that people think of when they think of a mixed person, yeah. i.e. half Afro-Caribbean, half white kind of yeah. thing. The other children in in the the racialized group said to to Farah, You belong with us, and the look of relief and joy mm. on her face of being accepted and, and actively welcomed into that group. I thought that's really interesting. And then there was a bit later on where they asked the children to bring in things that represented their culture. So you got the Muslim children are bringing in these prayer mats and explaining how they're used. And then they had some children um, who had East African heritage and they were bringing in jewelry and explaining what it was for and how it was worn. And they were all just incredibly articulate and passionate about it. And then the white British kids were kind of going, "Um, this is a Bible don't really know why i bought it (laughs) no um yeah well this is the england flag Mm, kind of thing and and that got me thinking about whether having a really strong sense of identity of cultural identity is a form of privilege and so that's where this dynamic between luella and aretha comes from so so luella is of similar heritage to me her mother is white welsh and her father is from somewhere in south asia we but we don't know where because she doesn't know him and then aretha her dad is caribbean he's from jamaica and her mother is white english but aretha's dad is very loving and present and she has a strong connection to the caribbean side of her heritage and luella doesn't know who the the non-white side of her is and so it's about the the dynamic between these two girls as they try to work out who has the most privilege but then I had to introduce the character of Steph who I love and want to be friends with in real life. And she is a, a dark skinned African black woman who is very politically engaged. And the, her role within the book is to, to anchor this all in a really solid set of principles, because what I didn't want people to think was that I was going, oh, you know, but white people can experience racism too. That is totally not what I'm saying in any way, shape or form. That does not come across. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. good. Um, so, so Steph is there to go, you know, privilege is a thing and hierarchy of privilege privilege is a thing and, and critical race theory has value and here's some principles and then the two of them kind of take what she says and, and interpret it in in their own way that was such a long answer sorry
0: but it was a good answer because I think it has to be long because this thing isn't to, sorry to use a phrase but it isn't black and white it's you know right the whole point is there is nuance there there is like shades of gray and I think you get that across really well Toxic is published by UCLan and it's out on July the seventh. Natasha, you're not one not to finger a pie. What else are you up to?
3: <laughs> what a brilliant way of putting it. Um, <laughs> so I have um, I have a non fiction book coming out in August for teenagers, all about how you don't have to choose between your grades and your mental health. Um, so look out for that. And then there's a, a follow up to that coming out next year which is all about social media and tech um for young people and i'm also i'm working on a follow-up to toxic i really wanted to examine keris's story luella's mom so i worked out that we're about the same age so she would have been a teenager when when i was a teenager and also there's i mean interesting stuff has clearly happened to her so i am i'm going back in time and where can people find you on the socials please I'm underscore Natasha Devon and I'm on Twitter and Instagram. Awesome. Natasha, as ever, thank you so much for chatting with me.
4: You play ball like a girl!
1: Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. I'm joined by Charlotte French, the funnier half, she's asked me to say, of the Two Girls Talk Balls podcast. Hello Charlotte, how are you
4: doing? Hi there, I'm really good. I'm really happy to be here chat about the Euros and all things women's football. Did you know, because I've only just learnt this fact, it is the
1: women's Euro, not actually the Euros. I know this because I recorded an advert for The Guardian the other week and it flags up don't say the Euros, say the women's Euro.
4: And I was like, oh, right. I, I never knew that. Didn't know it. I did not. But I tell you what, UEFA are really hot on all that copyright stuff. So I can imagine them <laughs> being battering the guard, <laughs> over the head, for sure. Charlotte, let's start
1: with the obvious question. We've had a very, very good run of results. The old, the lionesses, the filderness years, as I'm calling them, the Phil Neville managerial run. That's over. Highly on board with that statement <laughs> there and that um, typecasting of it. <laughs> I literally came up with it today and I was like, why have I never used that before?
4: Oh, that that needs to be in general conversation.
1: That I oh, know, Charlotte, I'm a genius. They're, those years are behind us. We've got Serena
4: Wiegmann now. After the Olympics, she came along, so she left her post at the Netherlands, then jumped ship over to England. So this is her first major tournament but obviously she's had competitive games during the last well just under 12 months that she's been in post what do you think England's chances are it looks good doesn't it but but you've always got to be just a, oh, a little bit careful as an England fan I always answer this question with an intake of breath first because <laughs> I like to answer it two ways head and heart because I'm so used to as an English football fan perpetual disappointment yeah and I cannot shake off that feeling that it will just happen every single time. There's a chance, so I like to quash any hope that builds within me. And the closer and closer we get into the Euros, sorry, the Euro, you can <laughs> call the- it what you like. I, I don't mind. I just, it's a little bit of I just don't want you way for suing you. That's all. As well. Oh right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Mm. The closer we're getting to it, you just can't help get excited. I think their most recent friendly has really helped up the ante because. Mm. They played the Netherlands. They had a brilliant result and a particularly very good second-half performance. And it's against a team of the sort of level they're going to have to beat maybe a couple of those sort of teams to win it. And I think it made people think, oh, this really could happen. Mm. However, there are some tasty teams in this tournament. I think the difficulty with this particular tournament is there is quite a number of teams that could win it. So Mm -hmm. from a viewer's perspective, I think we're going to see some brilliant games because it's difficult to hang your hat on an outstanding favourite at the minute, certainly from my point of view. I don't think you could say they're nailed on and someone else would have to be lucky to sneak in. I think it's really going to depend which team gets in in their stream very quickly when the games start. So it's due to be... Last summer, so all the marketing you'll have seen would have been Euro 21 because England and and the women's team play on odd years, basically. They fall in tournament years that the men don't usually play. Personally, I think England will benefit from this. I think the squad looks very different this summer to what it may have looked like last summer in a positive way as well. I think we've had some players who've taken their credentials to the next level that will now be starters and will be making the squad that weren't in in the picture before so or weren't regularly in the picture so Ella Toon, Lauren Hemp, Chloe Kelly, Alessia Russo none of those would have probably been completely in the mix had this tournament happened last summer and they're now just those four off the top of my head are players that are just fantastic and really add something else to an England squad that we didn't really have before a lot of pace and a lot of direct play and just a they don't really play with any fear. And I think that's some t- that's something that we've added to the squad now that we've benefited from the last 12 months. We've also had a really competitive WSL season. And I think going into a tournament off the back of that will, will only help an in- international squad. So what about Wigman? Because she's got pretty
1: good pedigree, hasn't she? She won the, the Euro with Netherlands. They are the reigning champions then. She took Netherlands quite far in the World Cup, didn't she, as well? Yes, so- she did. What do you think about her? Do you think she's the real deal? Do you think that's sort of translating well with the England squad?
4: Yeah, I think she's a different character in that. I think she's taken a bit of time to maybe warm to particularly how the English media do things and ask Mm. things. I think she's now maybe starting to get what football is like in England. I think she's adjusting to the scrutiny of it as well, because I think this is... The same across women's and men's football, particularly in England. You scrutinise so much more in sport generally, but particularly in football. And I think that's there's been a bit of adjustment period for her with that. On the pitch, I think she's done well. The results have generally been pretty good. I mean, they've hammered some sides that they were meant to hammer. The look better organised and like they've got a plan B, which has always been one of my criticisms with England under Phil Neville. Plan A was a bit murky, but there certainly <laughs> wasn't a plan B. <laughs> um, <laughs>
1: <laughs> plan A was a bit murky. I enjoyed
4: that. So I think what she's done is she's looked at the squad and thought, what are our strengths? And she does have a style of play, but she she likes England to be comfortable in the ball. She still likes them to be in possession, but she's also not scared of moving the ball through the thirds quickly. And I think England used to dawdle a lot on the ball and see opportunities past them and passed sideways and backwards so much. And it used to infuriate me when I was watching them. And I don't quite feel that frustration under watching a Serena Wiegmann side, which I think is a positive at the minute. I think she's made some really good, bold decisions with the squad she's chose as well. Obviously, the headline capture was the England captain, Steph Houghton, not making the squad. Personally, I think it's the right decision, certainly from a footballing perspective. I don't think Mm. think she's played enough league football this season to justify her place in the squad. It's not nice to see a player of that stature get Mm. left out because I do also doubt whether we'll see a player for England again, purely because I think this squad will now move on after this tournament and I, I don't know whether there'll then be a spot for her to go back to. So I I have a lot of sympathy for her in that. I don't think she'll almost get that international send-off that she definitely deserves because she's been really good on the pitch, but she's been fantastic growing the profile of the game and doing a lot for women's, women's football. So I do have a lot of sympathy, but it's got the decision. She's definitely based it on football, and that's what I like about it. I think previously some people have made emotional decisions and taken maybe players that aren't fully fit because you know, they feel like they have to. It was nice to see that she did test the players properly at camp as well, because we've had Frank Kirby, for example, who's made the squad, but not played since February. And she's obviously been through the rigour of the camp and Serena's thought, well, there is a place for her there. I think the squad she's picked on on a whole is well balanced. It's pretty good. There is a couple of players who maybe are lacking a bit of form in there, but I don't think they'll be starters. So I think we've got excellent depth for one of the first times, form-wise, in an England team, maybe because she's not English, she
1: can make those decisions without the sort of sentimentality of it all. But I think you're right; it is sad to see Steph Houghton out of, out of the picture and and potentially out of international football altogether, as you say. Because I think you're absolutely right; she has done huge things for raising the the profile of the game. You almost can't think about the Lionesses without sort of
4: seeing her, can you? It's it's well, it's if you think back one. to The World Cup in 2019, Mm. she was everywhere. She's all over Lucas Air Bottles. She's the face of Cadbury. She's the face of Lego. All these huge organisations who want to, you know, try and buy into women's sport that way have chosen her as the figurehead of it. So Mm. the fact that she's now missing, it will show a changing of the guard for this squad, which it needs to do to win a tournament because the, the squad underperformed... At the world cup for the talent that's Mm. in it Mm. drastically underperformed i think getting to the final was the bare minimum that would have been acceptable from that squad and i think to be fair it's got to be the marker of success in this tournament it's a home tournament we've got a really full fully fit squad we've got plenty to choose from competition for places you've got to look at it and say this is england's best chance to win it, a major tournament at the minute. You've said that you think there's a there's a few different teams that could potentially
1: win it. Do you want to tell us who you think might be in the
4: running? I'll tell you who makes me nervous when I watch them play. Spain make me nervous, but give me a slight bit of hope in that one of their best strikers and best players, Jennifer Hermoso, is now up with injury and they don't have a like-for-like replacement for her. So I think trying to fill that gap will be difficult for them and England did well against them in the now famous or infamously named Mm -hmm. Arnold Clark Cup which was at the beginning of the year I don't know if I like that more than the She Believes Cup that they weren't allowed in but do you know what I tweeted about
1: it and I said did no one think about the optics of taking this brand new women's tournament and naming it after A man. Did did no one in any of those
4: meetings? Who's round that table? I got a really shitty
1: response from Arnold Clark's Oh we're sorry, Jen, that we can't change our name for you or something like that. And I was like, Look, I think it's great that companies want to invest in women's sport. I think that's a really, really positive thing. But why like call it like the Arnold Clark? whatever cup or like yeah the whatever cup sponsored sponsored by by arnold clark don't call it the arnold clark cup for fuck's sake that's just like the most how egotistical
4: do you have to be it's it's mad (laughs) i'm glad to see that you took it up on twitter because it is (laughs) generally in the women's football world it's a bit of a joke that it's called that now because of all the optics and things like that because you know we break away from the quite wet name she believes, oh, and then we end up with the well. Ar- exactly, and they end up with the Arnold Clark Cup. So we can do no right at the minute <laughs> in mini tournaments in women's football. Can't we just like? Can't it just be like
1: the I don't know wherever the fuck it's happening cup? Like what? Do,
4: why does it need <laughs> the to March be cup? I don't,
1: exactly the one that happens in April, whatever. Like yeah. oh, the she believes is like a.
4: So condescending, isn't it? Oh, she believes.
1: What does she believe? What does she believe? (laughs) She can play football. She knows she can play football. She's playing football. Observe her. Play football. Fucking hell. (laughs) Sorry. I'll shut up now.
4: (laughs) It's fine. But yes, England met Spain in um, the Arnold Clark Cup and dealt fairly well with the problems that Spain posed to them. I think if Spain can get it together, there will be a force to be reckoned with. I think they. Maybe like a little bit of balance, getting the cohesiveness together. Some of the Nordic countries scare me, particularly Sweden, off the back of what they did at the Olympics, where I thought they were brilliant and really came together. They've not changed too much of the squad. When you look at them from the outside, there seem to be a squad that knows exactly what they want, exactly what they're doing. They've not really got any, you know, loads of new players blooded in. I think they could be one to watch. I think you can tell a lot about a country
1: by the way. It's female athletes perform, but but also how it's like Paralympic squads perform. So basically you can see how much money a country puts into its and athletes. equally across sports. Exactly. Yeah. So if you've got like, for a long time, Spain, obviously the men's team were like up there as one, yeah. one to beat. And the women's team were not particularly. On the other hand, you've got Sweden, whose men's team are not, amazingly good okay. to be fair yeah. they're alright they're alright but the women's team are you know they're, they're pretty solid in Sweden they they were pretty good in the last World Cup I thought quite mm-hmm. exciting to watch and of course you'd sort of expect that from a country like Sweden wouldn't you that they treat their female athletes well because they kind of got that that sort of ethos within the country they so. do they don't
4: penalise them for having children like other places exactly. around the world do they exactly <laughs> so I think there's a couple of outside bets, though. You might see a Denmark or a Norway make a pretty good tournament out of it. I don't think you can write off the Netherlands, but I think this might be a bit of a stretch for them. I'm undecided about France, so just for a bit of background, France have been having a bit of turmoil getting ready for this tournament. One of their best players, Henri, who plays for Lyon as well, has had a really serious falling out with the French coach, who's Mm. been left out of various squads. Uh, Lossomere, one of the strikers, really good player, hasn't made it. The talent is there, and I think if they can get over maybe the personality obstacles and the clashes that have happened within that squad, they they should do well. I mean, they've got a fairly nice group that they should comfortably get out of but i wonder whether they'll be a, be ready for the rigors of knockout football later on in the tournament against teams that are probably really well-honed on that but i don't think you can ever write them off because of the talent that's in there i just think some of the off the field bits might spill over into that team typical france isn't it? <laughs> always happens always happens
1: they implode exactly i want to ask you what i ask everyone who comes on the podcast to talk about women's football, because I think it's really interesting. I think the perspective is always quite different. What do you think the state of women's football is at the moment in the UK?
4: The product on the pitch is improving and improving at quite a rate, if I'm honest. It's really pleasing to see. I think if you watch the WSL from three years ago, you won't believe the improvement of all the teams across it when you looked at it from last season. I think that can be measured by... The teams further down the league that are sometimes getting surprise results against those at the top of the league. We've got teams like Reading, West Ham, Spurs, who are budget-wise miles away from the big trio of Man City, Chelsea Mm. and Arsenal. We're able to get results against those type of teams. So I think that shows how the game is progressing. The WSL is doing fine. I think we need to be careful, as I'm talking about women's football as a whole, when you grow it that we don't let those leagues beneath fall away because then you're just going to end up with Hmm. a WSL league, which is supported by probably men's teams with the most money because at the minute all those women's teams don't break even, they make losses. So a lot of it is revenue generating from the men's team and they need the men's support. And what I don't want to end up with is a Premier League 2 in the women's game. So I think it's making sure that any support and therefore the product growth is also spread carefully along the tiers. I don't have the exact answer to that, but I think it's just something we need to be really careful of because I think there's been mistakes made in men's football that I really want women's football to avoid.
1: You support Middlesbrough, who are better than Charlton Athletic, but, you know, they're not up there. Marginally, at the minute. (laughs) (laughs) So you will feel the pain that I feel that the men's system is set up where basically everyone beneath the Premier League is just a feeder club for yeah. the Premier League. And really, like, unless you get bought by a billionaire, basically your, your chances of ever competing with the big boys are just, they grow increasingly tiny, yeah. basically. Yeah, I think
4: the best you can hope for when you're, you support clubs like we do mm. is for promotion and you get a bit of time in the Premier League, that's probably, and you might be lucky you get a cup. I think that is generally all we can hope for now because I think the breakaway teams who often play in Europe just dominate that area of football. I mean, it's to be expected because the money talks in the game. Mm. But I think if there's a way of avoiding it to keep it competitive, to see women's football do because there's some fantastic clubs lower down the divisions in the championship and tier three, tier four clubs that are not affiliated to anyone that are really grassroots standalone clubs and have grown themselves organically. And you don't want to see them just washed out the spot because they haven't got their billionaires or mm. anyone who really wants to invest in them. And I think that's the responsibility of the FA and particularly to look after that pyramid properly. Yeah absolutely
1: can you tell us a little bit about your podcast please the two girls talk balls podcast which you present with
4: Tamsin Connor can you tell us a little bit about it? you've been going for a while now haven't you yeah so first started up as that kind of a just a world cup short series and I joined it shortly after the start of the WSL series that year so towards the end of 2019 so Tams and I have been going since then, so we have weathered a pandemic together <laughs> and come, come out the other side. So it's a podcast that normally comes out weekly during the season. It's sort of a review, preview of mostly the WSL, but if there's other bits going on of note, we'll also try and give a nod to them. We try and do it in a, what we say is an alternative voice to your sort of mainstream, your mainstream media organisations, which means... You know, you might hear some interesting opinions. You might hear some observations that you might not normally see or hear if you listen to your, your mainstream things. So, because we do think it's important to have a bit of fun with it as well. Mm. I think we are both huge football fans and huge women's sport lovers in general. And while there's lots of issues with inequality in sport and lack of funding and all the other bits and pieces alongside all that, we also think it's really important to enjoy it as well. It's got to be about having fun. So we do like to have a bit of fun with it. And then just to open the game out to everyone else, just maybe if you haven't watched much women's football or if you're not sure if it's for you, it's you know not, not too heavy in that you can get into it without having to know the ins and outs of every team. So that's that's the balance we're trying to strike to open it out to more listeners.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you guys are great. I really enjoy listening to podcasts. I don't know, one of the things I love about football is I think
4: there's quite a lot of humour in it. I think for some people miss out the humour sometimes. I think they're so busy trying to tell you who's done what, this on the pitch. You can just have a bit of a laugh because there's some hilariously stupid stuff that goes on. And why aren't people laughing and joking about that? I don't know, maybe you disagree, but it's not this scientific thing that people would have us believe it is it's, it's just some people it's kicking know. a ball around a exactly. pitch people, people exactly. overcomplicate the game of football for me sometimes it is the one the simplest sports you can play as well it's got a handful of proper rules you can enjoy it of varying different standards like it doesn't need to be X times, really just X amount of chances lead to a goal. I don't need the ratios of that, and I'm certainly not interested in it because I just want to enjoy it for what it is. Okay, so we can find Two Girls Talk Balls
1: on, on the usual podcast platforms.
4: Yes. Where you usually get your podcasts is how we, you know, (laughs) before we get shouted at by anybody, (laughs) our producer will just say, just go with that one. We're also on Instagram at Two Girls Talk Balls. You might see some funny little videos, particularly throughout the Euros there as we're travelling to games. Mm -hmm. And we are pretty active on Twitter at TG Talk Balls. You can always get involved in bits and pieces of conversation and little bits we've got going on there. If you want to see a little bit more about what Tamsin and I do independent of each other my Twitter handle is c french 09 and Tamsin is at Connor underscore Tamsin and she, she will like me for saying this she's Tamsin with a S, not a z makes her very angry <laughs> with a z so if you want to introduce yourself definitely tweet her Tamsin with a z <laughs> Who Who's spelling Tamsin with a Z? That's not how Tamsin's oh, spelled. She gets it all the time. Oh,
1: dear. She gets
4: a lot of Tasman as well. So we have a joke about that, a lot of Tasman.
1: <laughs> well, you can listen to Charlotte and Tasman, Tamsin, sorry, on the Two Girls Talk Bulls podcast. I'm really looking forward to hearing you guys over the women's euro. Thank you so much, Charlotte,
4: for joining me. Thanks for having me. Having a great time. <laughs>
0: Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, which film from my DVD collection did you watch this week?
2: <laughs> <laughs> this week we watched Road to Perdition, amusing on fathers and sons, released in 2002 and directed by Sam Mendes. And 20 years after its release, I still can't get my brain to accept that it doesn't have a definite article in the title. So if I call it The Road to Perdition, feel free to correct me. But it absolutely won't go in.
0: Well, also correct me, because when I talked about it last week, I also gave it a definite article.
1: When I searched it last night, I searched for the, and it didn't come up, and I was like, now where is it? And then I was like, maybe it doesn't have a the in front of it. It didn't. There we go. Sorry. End of story.
2: Yeah, major flaw. The end. Based on <laughs> a graphic novel by the same name, despite being labelled by many the best gangster film since The Godfather Part Two. Rota Perdition is listed on Wikipedia as a neo-noir period crime drama. And I actually think that suits it better. Although very violent ballet would also do it, I reckon. <laughs> Made on a budget of $80 million, blimey. It grossed $181 million at the box office, which is, granted, a whole lot of money. But if you look at it in gambling terms, and don't I always, it's actually not... <laughs> Only a committed high roller would put that much money on what turned out to be a return of less than three to one. Speaking of money, it's set in Depression era America and has a superstar cast, including an against type Tom Hanks, a pre bond Daniel Craig, <laughs> Jennifer mm-hmm. Jason Lee, Stanley Tucci, Kieran Hines. And Jude Law, who has the good grace to look to everyone in this film, how he looks to me all of the time.
0: <laughs> he does. He does. That was. I was like, "Is this?" That's what I see. The him film like? that made you dislike. No, him no, no. It's or feel creeped out. It's by just him? the
2: film that in which he most resembles what he looks to me like underneath what he normally looks like if that makes sense <laughs> okay yeah okay the, the
0: weirdness is back in your yeah. core that's fine yeah
2: <laughs> road to Perdition was also the last film of bona fide hollywood legend paul newman who everyone thought would finally bag his oscar when he was nominated although that award eventually went to chris cooper for adaptation shame the film was also the swan song of cinematographer Conrad L. Hall, the undoubted star of the show, who was awarded both the Oscar and BAFTA posthumously. What did critics make of Perdition*? Well, it received mostly positive reviews, although some, including Mark Commode, while praising Hanks' performance, found the character of Michael Sullivan Sr. to be too good to be true. Other critics pointed out the somewhat confusing framing of the narrative. If this is the story of Michael Sullivan Jr., Why does loads of stuff happen that he would have had no idea about? And I have to say, I think these are valid criticisms. Let's do a bit of a plot for anyone listening and who hasn't watched yet. In 1931, Irish mobster Rooney, played by Newman, runs his corner of Prohibition, Illinois, with the help of his two sons. The first is his actual son, the reckless and feckless Connor, that's Daniel Craig, The second is the son he chose, his loyal enforcer, Sullivan. That's Hanks. And any swift study of the gangster genre will tell you that that ain't going to end well. When Sullivan's own son, Peter, becomes curious as to what his dad does for a living, his elder brother, Michael Jr., hides in the back of his dad's car to find out. This, too, will not end well. Indeed. And father and son soon find themselves on the literal and metaphorical road to perdition in an attempt to hide both from the Roonies and to kill them. Mickey, you have seen this many times before, Jen. No, never. This is the first watch. First watch. Mm-hmm. OK, where to start?
0: Can I start with a little observation that probably won't go anywhere, yeah. but I need to get it off my chest. And that is Tyler Hoechlin. Am I saying that right?
2: Who knows? to me looks
0: like a tiny Ray yeah. He he does
2: have wise man face <laughs> for a kid yeah. yeah yeah he does seem quite even when he's in his innocent stage of this film he has quite wise old man face and he's just got
0: those incredible eyes mm. as well those mm. like cut eyes like Ray Liotta. and I thought that was quite fitting
2: yeah we should maybe start with Comrade Hall because that is the to me this is the highlight of this film it is that it is absolutely you could eat it for dinner beautiful it's just incredible. If we're talking about Michael, the two shots of Michael when they first get to Chicago that, that kind of show how out of place he is in this town. The one where he's on the pavement and everyone's looking forward and he's looking upwards. And then the one where they leave him in the train station and everyone's reading the newspapers and he's reading his little book. They are yes. both so beautiful. They would make a, a grown man week.
0: I love the shots when... So Rooney Sr. has just humiliated Connor at the business table and you see Rooney Newman walking off with his arm around Sullivan and Connor out of focus in the mm. foreground and it just follows them with like him out of focus in the foreground then it just shifts to the focus being on his furious hurt pride expression oof and you're just like well I know how the rest of the I know how so much of this yeah. film is going to pan out now it's it's so...
2: even before that when they're playing the piano together and you see Mm. Daniel Craig's face go from oh isn't this sweet to oh my god why isn't that me and him in about two seconds and it's yeah brilliant
0: it's a much 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 more understated version of Nicolas Cage looking in the mirror during face (laughs) (laughs) not knowing whether to to laugh or be sad but it's also fucking hilarious It's so, so good. And yeah, it's just, it's just stunning the the play with shadow and light and water. It's so cool. I think it's trying to look
2: like the graphic novel, isn't it? But I think Mm -hmm. this does create its own problems because it is strangely bloodless for something that's quite bloody. If you look, for example, at the scene where Michael takes them all out, he takes Paul Newman out, you don't even see their bodies drop. You just see it as like a kind of slow motion ballet you you never see Newman dead so there is an mm, yeah. odd like for a film that's supposedly about the repercussions of violence you don't really see many of the repercussions of violence
0: i think that's true but i think that feels like a decision so i'm yeah. okay with it it feels yeah. like they've gone in like that so you never see like the civilian collateral damage of being a gangster either I think you see All the, of the emotional between the mobs I think yeah
3: agree. You see
1: the emotional damage you see the emotional damage that it does to to the Sullivans I guess uh, primarily. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that must be a decision. That's why um I was wondering what the certification was. Is it like an artistic choice or is it a let's keep the let's keep the age limit younger if mm. that makes sense so more people can see it. I don't know. I think
0: Hanks and Mendes both wanted to keep the violence to a minimum from what mm. I read around it.
1: Yeah, quite possibly. I mean, it does... I, I think you're absolutely right, Mick. It does look like a decision, and I... Yeah. Mm. I find it odd. As a squeamish person, I was yeah. uh, happy about mm. that choice. <laughs>
0: and I guess, actually, the, the blood that we do see, the, the real slash of red that we get to see is, spoiler alert, Sullivan's death, right? Yeah,
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: So it has quite a lot of impact, because that is the first time you've seen, yeah.
2: actually, that much... Blood. What is surprisingly impactful about this is that, you I mean, you know where it's going right from the start because you get a sense of from it. From the title. Yeah, exactly. From the opening thing in which he says he's on the road for five weeks. So you even get the time limit. And because of the way just sods law things play out. Do you know what I mean? You know this has kind of mm-hmm. come down to a thing about Sanj. But also that Hank's being shot in the window. You also know that Jude Law's behind him because he's pulled that trick with reflections in the glass twice before. Like yes. where Daniel Craig... Can't see oh, the boy. That's a glorious can't shot. Can't see the boy, but you think he can see him. And then again, using Jude Law, he's looking at the photo of the family, but you can't see them because his reflection is coming back at you from mm-hmm. the glass. So you know, I mean, you know it's going to be there, but you're still like, fuck, when it happens. So I think that says everything yes. about this film that it shouldn't have any tension, but yeah, it does.
0: And because I've seen it so many times, every time we're in that final scene in the house by the beach, I search for Jude Law because I know he's yeah. there and I search him and I, ca- I can't see him. It's so cleverly done. It's so cleverly done.
2: Jen, mm. on the cinematography front, tell me what, what you made of it to look at as
1: a feast for the eyes. It's very beautiful, isn't it? It is a real, like, uh, how it was how you described it, the alternative description you gave up the top about it being like a film noir. It is. and It's kind of got, like, a similar feel to it as um, Sin City. Mm. That kind of, like darkness to it i guess the, the the playing with the light and stuff that's another graphic novel yeah. isn't it yeah, yeah exactly yeah it's a really yeah it looks really beautiful i think the trick with the light that's my probably the the thing that i really well you can't not notice it it's quite a big scene obviously but the uh where he's looking at him his reflection of himself and the boys outside in the snow that's like one of the bits that really like stuck with me mm. and now you've said it Actually, the bit where he dies and there is that kind of... Because they use this sort of filter on it all, don't they? There's that They've sort of filtered the light. Or they've done something like post-production to give it this particular stylistic sort of quality. And the red of his blood at the end is really, like, vivid. Vibrant. Mm. Yeah. So, yeah, I think it looks absolutely beautiful. Did I love, love, love the film? Mm, no, maybe not. But, like, I didn't. Mm, well we'll come to this but I thought like it it artistically speaking it looks incredible yeah absolutely
0: I've just thought of another really cool reflection scene because like you say Hannah it's kind of bloodless even though a lot of deaths occur yeah. but they tend to happen off screen and that includes Connor yeah right and we don't we just mm. see the door swing open so we can see the mirror into the bath and it's it's just so clever oh, yeah. because of course the whole thing is reflections it's like Sullivan doesn't want to see a reflection of himself in his kid and Rooney wishes he could see more of a reflection of him in his
2: actual kid but instead he sees it in Sullivan did that make sense yeah it did yeah (laughs) Yeah, it it did did. yeah which I suppose brings us to Tom Hanks because I I I can see the point that although I think he's great in this because it's sort of coming through the eyes of his child he is somewhat sentimentalized by it and then with the added Mm -hmm. thing that it is Tom Hanks and Tom Hanks is, yeah. you know, Mr. America. He's not as terrifying, perhaps, as he should be.
1: Yeah, so one of the main things that I had a problem with was that I didn't really buy him. Like, I didn't really buy Tom Hanks as this character. It seems very un-Tom Hanksy, as you've said. But maybe that's kind of the point, that actually, like, these were just sort of jobs and people did just sort of get on with them and... and You know, it was all a lot more kind of day-to-day routine. I don't know. I think, like, also... I said to my mum as we were watching it, after Connor kills his wife and kid, I said to my mum, the thing is, if you will be a professional hitman, you are rather putting yourself and your family at risk of bad things happening to you because you are sort of hanging out with fairly unsavoury characters. Which is what Paul Newman says later on. Basically, is mm. like, look at who you're in this. Like, there's only murderers in mm. this room. Exactly, mm. and I wondered if, I wonder now, as you're saying that, sort of against, contrary, almost to what I've said about not really buying him as this character. Maybe that's the point. Maybe the point is that it is sort of normalised in that world, so he doesn't have to be this really terrifying guy because it, it's just a thing that's happening. Sorry, I didn't articulate that very well, but does no, that make sense? I,
0: I, I, I get what you mean. And also, I suppose it's an idea that's been played with, with the Sopranos. It's like this, this differentiation between family and what you would do for your family and what you would do for a job. I think with, because it's based on real characters. Mm. So O'Sullivan was a real character and he was known as the Angel of Death and so was like feared. And I don't think you do get that with Sullivan in this film. I don't think you get how frightening he is. And he was telling actually quite a lot of the reviews go, oh, Michael Jr. witnesses Connor killing someone. And it's like, he also witnesses mm. his dad machine yeah. running down three men. Mm. But it's the killing that Connor does that becomes obviously the, the crux of why they have to go on the run, etc., etc. et cetera. But I think maybe it hasn't become clear to Sullivan until this point that there is a real big problem with what he does for a living and how he sees himself as a family man.
2: Hmm. I'm sorry. She's just being a dickhead <laughs> and there's nothing I can do about her. Oh,
0: is your cat a reflection of <laughs> <Yeah>. you?
2: <laughs> absolutely.
0: Is it Peggy? It is
2: Peggy. Hello, Hello, Peggy. Pegs.
0: This is what happens when you do a bring your cat to work uh, day.
2: Absolutely. It's chaos. Yeah. I see both your your points on that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think Hanks is good in it. But I do, I do. Oh, I think he's brilliant. I think it, yeah, it is he the is, character's yeah. fault. The character is, is underwritten, and like I say, it could be because that's how Michael sees his dad. But the problem is that it's not entirely. Like I say, it's not entirely shot through Michael's eyes, mm. which makes this story slightly yeah more complicated. I mean, I think some of the things it does brilliantly, like there's the bit where he leaves Michael in the car, and he says, "If I'm not back in half an hour." go to the Methodists, don't go to Father Kelly or whatever he's called. That sentence mm-hmm. immediately sums up all the shorthand is there for this whole community is drenched in this. The church is yeah. involved in this. Like everybody is drenched in this. Bits of it like that are done. The economy in the way it's written. And yet it still finds time for some lovely old lyrical chat for Paul, uh, Paul Newman. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I really love as well that they made the decision not to show Al Capone. Yeah because they filmed a scene with him in it and then they cut it at the last minute and I think that's so cool because I think
2: the threat of Al Capone is massive but he only says Al once, that's it he doesn't even say his full name he just says Al and that's it, you Mm -hmm. know because I said to Gary, I was like oh, who do you think he's going to see when
0: Sullivan goes, I'm going to go to Chicago there's a man I work for there and he went, Big Al and I was like,
2: nope (laughs) Little Stan, that's not his name (laughs) Frank, anybody got anything else to add?
1: I found the music a bit irritating Felt a little bit like when you watch American documentaries and they play that like sort of bed of music, and you always feel like you're reaching some sort of crescendo, even when you aren't. It felt a bit <laughs> like that to me. Do you know what I mean? It's like, but obviously that's not what the music is like. But it's there. for it's like it's constantly building tension. And it,
0: I think that's the point, isn't it? Because the I know, situation but was, they're in is really tense. But you found it too manipulative. It was,
1: yeah, it felt a bit too laboured to me.
0: I think it is very stylized, though. I guess the yeah. whole look of it, so therefore the sound is as well. I am—I'm probably not a great person to talk to about this film because I do just full on love it. I guess my only criticism is there aren't many women in it. But yeah. then I guess it's yeah. a thing of the times and what the subject is. That I don't think that's it. I don't. It was.
1: I don't think it really matters. You know, we've talked about other films before like that. It's—it's it's not. It's a story about a son and his dad, isn't it? Ultimately, so yeah, there is room for women in that story, obviously, but I can see why, given the subject matter and obviously the context that it is within a mob setting or whatever, I can see why there aren't that yeah. many women in it.
0: Yeah, it's more a worry for me that most of my film collection I have to make that comment. Because <laughs> everything you watch is like gangster
2: Wine adjacent. Heavy. So, <laughs> yeah, totally. you know. Although, although I will yep. say uh, about the ending, obviously, you know, there is that, God, How how is this going to happen? The only way this kid can live is if he actually does the thing his dad doesn't want him to do and it's really terrible. And But then it's sort of a bit upbeat, but then really terrible. And then when he pulls up in that car, honestly, every time I go, I oh, really hope he's got that dog with him. I really yeah. hope he's got that dog with him. <laughs> I just need something to get me through the end of this film. And he does indeed have the dog with him.
0: Poor Michael Junior. I mean yeah. he's seen some shit, man.
2: Yeah. He really has. So on that note, rated or dated?
1: Rated. Yeah, I'm a rated Yeah, I think it's I d I don't think it's dated, so yeah. It's you yeah, know. Yeah. What are we gonna watch next week, Jen? Well guys, Changing the tone slightly from that, next week we're going to watch Men in Black.
2: I've never seen it.
0: Have you not? Bit of Tommy Lee Jones, you know, I'm already a big fan
2: of that. Wiki
1: Wiki Wild, that's the wrong film, (laughs) sorry.
2: Jen, get his name out of your fucking mouth.
0: We were at a place on Saturday and there was a DJ. Just It was just like a cafe place but there's a DJ. And for whatever beat he was using underneath everything, it just sounded like at any time he was going to play a Will Smith track. Just all of the songs sounded like it was going to go Will Smith at any point.
3: Standard issue for all women.